Hello everyone. My name is Charles, the lead pastor here. Welcome to Zoom Sunday service here at the river. I am now at the site where we will be worshiping together on Sundays when we actually reopen. It's a beautiful space as you can see and we have upstairs and downstairs as well. It's going to be great when we are actually together. We are still experimenting with where to record and how to record. Uh, so please excuse us if there is a sound echo or lighting issues. We are still working on it and we'll get there. But we are really looking forward to that time when we will actually be able to see each other in person and worship God together in person. It's going to be fun when we are together. Anyway, um, we are in a sermon series called Understanding the Bible Through Jesus. Going through all the major events in the Bible one by one in chronological order and we now come to an interesting section of the Bible that deal with prophets and kings. So today we'll get introduced to Samuel, the last judge of Israel. He is more famous for identifying and anointing David as king, but he himself was quite a leader for Israel. And this is how the story of Samuel starts. 1 Samuel chapter 3. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli, the chief priest at the time. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. My son, Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. 
At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sins he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. So, in this passage, the boy Samuel mistakes God's voice with Eli's voice three times. Eli was the chief priest at the time, and Samuel was a servant of Eli from childhood. And when God speaks to Samuel, apparently it sounded just like Eli's voice. It seems God's voice is nothing special. It can sound just like an old man's voice. Right? And that's interesting because we assume God's voice will be dramatic, thundering from the heavens, shaking the earth, like Charlton Heston voice from the movie Ten Commandments, or something like that. But the Bible has lots of stories where God sounds and looks very ordinary, in a bush, in a whisper, in what sounds like an old man's voice, Interactions were mistaken as just normal interactions when it was actually God. Numerous times we've seen that in this sermon series so far. And that teaches us to look for God in everyday moments. You can feel the weight of God's presence during a walk, a sudden sense of peace, a sense of rightness, don't take those moments lightly. A sense of gratitude out of nowhere. Joy when there's really no reason. These are important moments. These are the moments that can make life come alive, more colorful, more cheerful, more meaningful. We need to, we need to be looking for these moments more and taking it more seriously when we experience them. Ask God for these moments. It will happen. Especially when our days, they can feel like a grind sometimes. Life can be a struggle. At those moments, turning to God and experiencing these God moments can make a big difference. Because there is something wondrous about life, isn't there? Beyond what we can see and touch. There is a bigger reality that can make life rich. Amen. So let's not be afraid to turn to God. I say this because sometimes I hear people say, God is so holy, God is so powerful, God can feel intimidating. So we want to keep God at a distance sometimes. Because of the fear of God's judgments. Because none of us are perfect. Especially those of us who grew up in churches that really emphasized the wrath of God, the judgment of God. God is watching you. God is going to judge you. And we are all sinners, so watch out. That can be a quite popular theme in church settings, in sermons. So many of us have grew, grown up with that, uh, hearing that 
all the time, the judgment of God. And there are lots of passages in the Bible we can point to. But to emphasize the wrath of God is not quite taking the whole context of the Bible into consideration. This passage is a great example. God does have a message of judgment on Eli's house. But what's the context? Why are they getting judged? Two specific sins are mentioned in the Bible about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Phinehas. One, they embezzled donations to the temple. They took for themselves, for their private use, what was meant for God. Second, the Bible condemns them for having sex with women who are dedicated to God at the temple. Now just think about that. These were women who dedicated their lives to serving God at the, at the church, at the temple. They are like nuns in today's terms. And Hophni and Phineas, they abused their positions at the temple. They were at the top of the hierarchy, just below Eli. They were like cardinals in Catholic Church, very high up. And these women are nuns. So think about that in the context of the Me Too movement these days. This is simply terrible abuse of power, just unthinkable, unspeakable offenses against God. But God is patient. God gave warnings to Eli as the chief priest, as the supervisor at the very top to rein in his sons to clean up the, the abuse. But Eli did not, apparently, just didn't do anything to rein his sons in. Why? That's terrible to let the abuse go on and on and on. This is kind of like the Catholic Church abuse scandal, isn't it? There were many priests who abused children in their parish. Spiritual authorities can abuse people under their care. It is bad enough that happened. But what is even worse is that the supervisors, the bishops, and the cardinals, when the problems were brought to their attention, they chose to cover it all up for a very long time, for many, many decades. They would shuffle these abusive priests from one parish to another, which enabled these predators to keep on preying on helpless victims for decades and decades and decades. And the bishops, they justified their cover-up by saying it would bring too much damage to the church's reputation if all this came to light, if they fessed up. It was solely God's name. The reputation of the church would suffer, and that would bring more harm than good, because they felt that they are the good guys doing good works for God. That is terrible logic. It's self-serving justification from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What they, have should, what they should have done instead is to put first 
the welfare of the helpless kids. No other agenda should have come first, especially in a church dedicated to following Jesus, where one lost, lost sheep should matter as much as the 99. For all human beings are worth the life of God incarnate in our faith. In the end, the Catholic Church had to pay dearly for all their cover-ups when it all came out. Actions have consequences. But this should not lead us to be afraid of God's quick wrath and judgment. I mean, look at Hophni and Phineas. They committed just about worst offenses against God for years. They abused their position in church to embezzle and abuse nuns. Have you done anything close to such terrible acts? I mean, I'm no saint, and neither are you, I'm sure. But I think I can safely assume that none of us come close to that level of abuse against God and other human beings. Yet God gives them chance after chance, second chance to repent. God gave warning to Eli, just rein them in, stop it. And finally, when it becomes clear it will never change, well, at some point, you have to protect the nuns and children, no? God has to do something. And what happens is, as judgment, it's pretty minimal, in my opinion. God simply removes God's protection over them. Here's the passage when the judgment happens. Uh, Israel is in a battle with Philistines. Two armies are facing off with each other. So the army of Israel, the people of faith, sent men to Shiloh. Shiloh at the time was like Jerusalem, uh, where the temple was, where the ark of God was. And they brought back the ark of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, the army camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned, that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into their camp. They said, oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines, be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is such an interesting story because Hophni and Phineas, 
after treating God with such contempt, they still carry the ark of God into the battlefield triumphantly as if now they will win because the ark is here. They are treating faith and God like some magic item that will give them invincible power despite their bad behavior. Well, God is not magic. Faith is not like magic from Harry Potter world. You can't just chant and use some wand or magical artifact like the ark, no matter how bad of a person you are, no matter how badly you think of God. And voila, God will move for you just because you have the ark, the talisman. Faith is not mechanical like that. God is not some force to be manipulated. So God withdraws the protection as judgment. And that's the punishment. That seems pretty mild to me, don't you think? So yes, there are consequences to our actions. But God seems to give us a lot of second chances, more than we would. Judgments are really rare in the Bible when you think about it. These stories span thousands of years. And they mostly happen to stop more abuses from happening, right? For example, the, the ten plagues in Egypt that this, this passage mentioned, mentions, that happened to stop genocide of Israelites. But people can get arrogant with power, thinking they can get away forever without consequences. Those kinds of things need to be stopped. Just think about Hophni and Phineas and their arrogance. They think they will be protected in battle by the favor of God. God whom they insulted and robbed day after day. They think God will still be on their side simply because they have the ark of God. It's this badge of faith that they can point to and carry around. It seems silly, but people today do that too. It continues even to this day. Uh, these days, people seem to think, well, I believe in the Bible, I go to church, I tithe. They, they, they wave the Bible like it's some kind of talisman. And that's all that matters, they seem to think. Power seems to make people arrogant and crazy. So many church leaders, one after another, with scandal after scandal, Jerry Falwell Jr., Rabbi Zacharias, Ted Haggard, Bill Hybels, big names in evangelical conservative church world, one after another in the recent years, just their bad behavior coming to light, falling from grace. What were they thinking? So this is another lesson I want us to take away today. Don't be arrogant. Don't be afraid of God, but don't be arrogant either. Don't think you can do just anything because you meet some criteria, like waving the Bible or carrying the ark. Actions have consequences. Faith is about substance of the heart, not just what we do on the outside. The unconditional love and worth that God extends towards all of us 
is about who we are, not about what we do. We must learn to separate the two, what we do and who we are. We are worth the life of incarnate. We are the beloved. So we need to treat ourselves well and other human beings well. But if we hurt and abuse ourselves or others, that shows we don't really believe in unconditional worth of all human beings, right? How could we kill or rob or abuse another human being if we really believed all human beings were unconditionally worth the life of God incarnate? If we believe that, we would have to treat people well. That is life-giving faith that saves. Please remember, faith is not this mechanical thing. No amount of banging the Bible and condemning the secular world and, and checking off boxes of the conservative church mean anything without the life-giving faith in your heart that all human beings are worth the life of God incarnate on the cross, that we are all beloved of God. Let's not be like Hophni and Phineas, who paraded the ark of God around like people do with the Bible these days. No, God is alive. Let's have some respect for the living God. God is a person, and God wants personal relationship with us. We can, if we can live by such faith, if we can walk with God at our side, it really will bring life to you. More color, more meaning, more joy. There will be these moments in life. God will invade those grinding, ordinary moments of life, and God will put a spring in your step. God will put light in your eyes. God will lift up your heart and give you strength. That's life-giving faith. Amen. Now, I would love to discuss all this with you, so please stick around for our Zoom Sunday discussions at 11.45. And it would be just lovely to have more of you join us on Sunday service at 11 o'clock. So join us. Uh, it's fun. Uh, or join one of our weekly Zoom groups. God bless everyone. Bye. Thank you.